our coaches were transformative for our leadership team. I mean, think about it. We've been working together over 20, nearly 25 years. So in some ways, we're like this family that, you know, we've worked forever. We have each other's backs. It's all wonderful and great. But there are probably some conversations that aren't always happening. Some of the tougher conversations and the coaches just in that first time we got together just made sure we're communicating well. And it was magical. Hello, I'm Katie Kuffel, one of the makers behind this podcast, and I'm joined by the CEO and founder of Liquid & Grit, Brett Novak. In this episode, we chat with Katie Bullish, co-founder and head of product at Play Studios, to discuss the importance of establishing a company culture, keeping a growing team's vision aligned, and how coaches can help grow and maintain top-notch leadership skills. This is Creators at Work. thought we'd maybe start out this one with a little bit more of the background story to you starting Play Studios with Andrew, because we know that you worked with Andrew before, your co-founder, and just hear a little bit about the start of it all and how you guys thought of this idea, because it was definitely a unique idea in Casino. I mean, at the time, Casino was entrenched with a lot of established big companies. And you guys came along with a new idea and broke into the market and have done extremely successful over the years. You want to start by telling a little bit about that story? Yeah, you know, the details are a little fuzzy because it was a while ago. You know, I remember getting a call from Andrew, may have been Andrew and Paul together, but they called and they had this idea, hey, we want to create a virtualized Vegas experience on this social platform called Facebook. And I remember thinking, well, those are free to play games, huh? I'm not sure. And so they tapped me to go out and do some research and come back and we're going to all meet in Vegas. So I remember the first few weeks digging in and thinking, holy smokes, this is an incredible opportunity. And it was right in our wheelhouse. So the more we learned and the more excited we became, it was clear that this was something we had to do. And in a lot of ways, it felt like Play Studios or Incubet was actually the name that we started with, felt like the thing we had been training to do for our entire careers. I mean, it was kind of the culmination of our collective experiences on the product side, on hospitality, in technology, customer care, and casino coming together at seemingly the right time with the right market opportunity. And what's crazy is our vision today is the same as it was when we started the company. It was play free games, get real rewards from day one, before day one. That was the idea. And, you know, when we started, we actually had the full meta experience mapped out. So it wasn't just a menu of casino games. It was it was a whole meta experience with great games on this loyalty platform or this rewards platform. So yeah, that's that's how it started. I mean, we we had worked together at a number of companies. When we first came together was at a company called Silicon Gaming, which at the time was making, the way it was described to me before I went there was, oh, you've got to check out this company. It's called Silicon Gaming and they're making Silicon Valley's version of a slot machine. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And I really didn't think I was going to check it out or like it, but Madeline Canepa was the one who recommended that I check it out. And she was a mentor of mine. So, you know, I went and took a look and 
it was amazing. I discovered something really special, which was the casino category. And it definitely wasn't something on my radar. But as I looked at it closer, it was this opportunity to have a really interesting demographic. But then you could also watch players interact with your product and learn a lot more about how they were behaving with your product. And you could use that to create better experiences. And so the combo of the broader demographic, shorter development cycles, and this idea of being able to get deep insights on players kind of hooked me in. And actually, that is where I met Andrew and Paul. Yeah, when we got the band back together, it was pretty exciting. And at every turn as we were getting it going, it felt like this is meant to be. Those companies before Play Studios were, at least what we found out in research, were pretty cutting edge too. I mean, you it was described as sort of like almost that you were building a slot machine that was like ahead of its time. So you guys were always kind of pushing the envelope, doing, trying new stuff. Play Studios wasn't the classic gaming model where it's something like something else. I mean, Play Studios was really a new combination because I, I can remember being at Zynga and hearing about Play Studios and having our team research it because it was like, wow, like this company's just come and done this totally new thing. Like, why aren't we doing it? How did you feel about doing something that was, again, pretty innovative? I know you guys are all real producty, which we can talk about too, but you did definitely kind of go out there on a limb in a new market that wasn't huge back then. It was pretty niche, right? Like, I mean, you tell your friends back then you're going into mobile gaming. It's not like it is today. Talk to me a little bit about that experience. Well, it's funny because you you say way back then, this idea of social gaming, it wasn't a category. It wasn't a thing. It was very niche, as you said. But as we looked at it, we just saw an incredible opportunity to differentiate ourselves. We are product people, as you know. And I mean, I guess we knew it was a leap, but it just seemed so obvious. It really, it just felt right. And I remember being challenged a lot early on about making things simpler and maybe cutting back our games, simplifying, get really simple, get really simple. Because at the time, the slot games weren't all that sophisticated, but we had a deep history of making slot games and knew how much nuance and attention had to go into that to create those deep experience and retain those players over time. And, you know, we we leaned on that as core to the game slot game experience. And then as we were looking at the market, these metagames just seemed so compelling. So it just all, we fed off of what was happening in the market and, and our experience. And then the rewards platform was, again, so obvious to us. It wasn't obvious to everybody else. And when we went out with the rewards platform initially, the funniest part about it was players didn't believe that they were real rewards. Like we had to do a lot of education around, no, you get real stuff. And they're like, oh, real virtual stuff. No, real stuff hotels, dinners, show tickets. And so that was part of the education. You know, the market's come a long way now. You don't have to breadcrumb some of that education. But yeah, that's uh, that's back where we started. The interesting thing about that being somewhat obvious is that it's definitely was something for a group of players, but not every player, right? I mean, obviously it's worked very well for you guys, but I'll give you a background story on being in Zynga Poker. We used to have general managers join from other markets, non-gaming, and always come up and tell us, hey, I have this great idea. You know, it's going to make a ton of money. They'd always send these new gems to me because I was the lead revenue PM. And they'd say, have you tried giving away real world prizes, houses and cars? And I 
I'd say, yeah, our players, they don't want a house or car. They just want chips. They already have a house and car. We actually tested it on Zingapokra and it didn't do that well because our players were more focused on the chips. And also, I think we probably weren't what it sounds like offering the right thing because we didn't have, like you said, Mm -hmm. the knowledge of what you guys had, which is how to offer the right things, how to integrate it into the reward system, how make it an additional selling point, not just you get real world prizes, right? It's you get an experience you enjoy in a game that you love. And you also get this other element that kind of convinces you to play. So I'm giving you a little bit more credit because I think other people did try it and did not succeed. I'm not going to attest to that. Well, you know, I think maybe the difference and, and you almost said it out loud when you described what happened is we built a loyalty platform and a loyalty program, a rewards program, not a feature. And that really is fundamentally different than how people have approached it. You know, people have tried to offer up rewards, but it's it's a whole collection of services and matching the right players to the right products. And loyalty programs work. They work in every industry they've been in, but it's more than a feature. And I think people who've tried it have tried it as a feature. And it's really hard to do. You know, you have to build a marketplace to make it successful. I wouldn't envy going back and trying to replicate what we did. Yeah. And you're touching on two things that I've thought about with my company, Liquid and Grid. And the, the first is that what you're saying is you three were somewhat unique and probably the best at starting this company in the world. Like maybe there was someone else out there, but knowing your background and the background of your co-founders, if you competed, if someone else had started that the same day, you probably would have beat them, even if Zynga went into it or whatever. And and that's something I think about Liquid and Grit. It's like, I have a unique set of combination skills and expertise that I believe in many ways make me unique to be able to build Liquid and Grit. And the second thing is I've structured the company and the culture and everything around it to be a research company. I mean, I have teams go, hey, meet with Brett and ask them what they do so you can do that internally. And I meet with them and I tell them right off the bat, there's no way that you're going to do what we do because we literally are 100% structured to do what we do. From the ground up, Mm -hmm. from every single thing I've decided about no meetings, remote work, it's to be the best research company. And you're at a gaming company and you're trying to do that, right? And I think you probably do a great job at it, but you're talking about from the ground up, we built it this way. And it sounds like you guys did too with the rewards program. It was built from the ground up from day one to have this whole system be rewards with the marketplace with all the things that you have. As I said earlier, from the start, play free games, get real rewards. It's an entire platform and program, which means teams behind it, making it work from just the mechanics of delivery of rewards to accounts, you know, account management to app management to player management. And so, yeah, it's a, and event management. We host these amazing events with our players to deepen those connections as part of the you know, rewards experience. So yeah, it's a pretty sophisticated system we've built. As part of that, you also backed this all up with a amazing culture that I've been, I've been sort of blessed to experience a bunch of times over the years and go down play studios office and see the get after it attitude with a ton of fun combined in it. Something that I probably haven't done as good a job as at Liquid and Grit. (laughs) So I'm excited to again, talk about it with you. But is that something that you built in from day one as well? Or is that something that developed over time? And then tell us a little bit about the culture there, because it is really unique. There's the epic story of the snow parties, the Vegas parties, and all the great stuff that goes on at, at Play Studios. 
I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but we've always had good parties and it's always been a big part of our experience. And culture, of course, has been important to us since since the founding of the company. You know, we wanted to do something we love and be around people that we enjoy and have everybody have a lot of fun along the way. But as a company, we try to get the entire company together at least once a year. And when I say entire company, I mean worldwide company together. Many times it's been everybody getting together in Vegas for a holiday party. And for some folks, it's the first time they've ever been to Vegas and they get to experience really a slice of what our product is. And we do really fun things when we're in Vegas. So our parties, of course, are really fun and we have lip sync contests and all kinds of great stuff. But we also have done scavenger hunts around the city of Las Vegas so that people are learning about our partners along the way while they're having fun. But then the story that you wanted me to talk about is uh, (laughs) we decided to do a family-focused holiday party because it's also nice when we can extend and have like a carnival or this was a holiday party where Susan, I think, came up with the idea, or maybe it was Andrew, to bring snow into Burlingame, which for those of you who aren't familiar with Burlingame, it's just outside of San Francisco. It doesn't snow in Burlingame, but our office has a parking on the roof, which means there's a ramp up to the roof. So we brought in snow and lined it with Christmas trees. And during the party, there was sledding for everybody outside. uh, And it was just a ton of fun. One of the funniest stories from it was as the snow was kind Coming in and we're building up this sledding hill and everything. The kids in the neighborhood were like, ooh, can we go on it? And Susan said, no, you can't go on it. It's not safe. And the kids said, well, don't worry. We'll, we'll come back when she leaves. And sure enough, the weather stayed cool. The snow stuck around all weekend. And I'm sure those kids just had a blast while none of us were around. And it's more than about the parties. I think, you know, it allows us to deepen our relationships with our playmakers, have a personal connection with somebody that you can then reach out to to problem solve or just to, to celebrate a win that you had on the product side. And there's nothing like being together with people on your team, especially when you're removed from work to get to know one another a little bit. And it's one of the things I definitely miss being in COVID mode and, and lockdown. You know, it's worth pointing out that we take that same approach to fun and driving connections with our playmakers to our players. All of our games, as we've talked about, are built on this reward platform, which is basically a loyalty system. So as you're playing the games, you're earning loyalty points to use for real world stuff. Our development teams and event managers and our play awards crew create these amazing experiences like My Vegas at Sea, which was a fully programmed cruise with slot tournaments and pool parties or our Las Vegas party with Shaq where he DJed the night and danced with our players. And so we have these fun events that bring our players together, build this sense of community, which drives deeper engagement with our brands. And it also drives personal connections among them, which is really great. Coming from Zynga, we had fun. But there was a certain level of intensity as well. It was sort of like the quote from, I think it's Super Troopers, like, if you choose not to have fun, fun will be provided for you. Kind of like this (laughs) somewhat forceful fun, you know? It was like, smile, everyone. But I mean, I love Zynga and that was fine by me, but it was a real intense place as well. Not that Play Studios isn't, but I think you guys have done a really nice job of being fun and you see it in the product. I'm interested to hear your perspective on this, because I want to learn this, is I have a hard time balancing being the fun guy and then also being the boss guy. Do uncomfortable things like letting people go. Personally, I've structured 
my company so that I have a little bit of distance so that it's easier for me to do that stuff. I have a really hard time doing it. In fact, the one funny story from me is I was going to let someone go who was a contractor and she wasn't doing the best job. And this was years ago. And I called her to let her know. And she basically convinced me that she should stay on. And because <laughs> I was like, I, you know, I hadn't really done this. She's like, oh, you know, whatever reason. But the time I hung up the phone, she was staying on for two months more. And anyways, I called my mom and I told my mom the story. She's in the car with her best friend. And she goes, this is what you're going to do, Brett. You're going to hang up this phone right now. You're going to email that person and tell them that they're done. You're going to give them a two-week severance and you're going to remove them from everything in your company. And I was <laughs> like, really? She's like, yep, that's what you're going to do right now. Now hang up the phone and go do it. That was kind of my introduction to like the other side of the business where you have to really do what's best for the company because you're also protecting the other people at the company. And that was my introduction. And that that really kind of made it so that I had to kind of keep a little distance because I'm not very good at that side of it. So I'm curious, how do you balance that? How do you balance doing those other things while also being the fun, awesome boss that I know you are and I see? I don't keep people at an arm's length. We do make tough decisions when we need to make tough decisions. But the way I try to tackle it is I try to inspire my teams through like getting them excited and cheerleading, but I want them to be inspired by the opportunities and I want them to find their passion about the products they're creating. And in order to foster that feeling, they need to feel the ownership of the products as well as feel the commitments they're making behind them to our players, to one another, to me. It's incredibly powerful when you see a team make that transformation. So from when they're just doing stuff because you told them to do stuff to when they're really owning the experience and the commitment. At that point, you can feel that they're being driven by intrinsic motivations it percolates this passion that I find pretty infectious. As you know, I come off super playful and hopefully always supportive, but I'm an incredibly competitive person. It may be quietly competitive, but deeply competitive. Always have been, comes from probably my athletic upbringing. And I want us to be great. And great is not easy. And it comes from always trying to learn, optimize, improve, and it takes a team that shares a similar drive, passion, and pursuit of excellence to actually get there. Because of that, you know, when you have to make the hard calls and have those challenging discussions, you have them. We talked about this last time, but I've been on some meetings with you guys and and it can get intense. I mean, I was on a particular meeting not too long ago where we were having a discussion about some metrics and it definitely went from glossing over slides to what's going on right here. And yep. why aren't we looking at it like this? And why haven't you looked at this? Why isn't this the next slide? And that, that's awesome to see. I mean, it's awesome to be able to go back and forth and have that trust. What are some of the things that you think, tactically speaking, that really help you build this type of trust and camaraderie and intrinsic motivation? Right. Some of the tools I use to get there is really through asking a lot of questions. So if you've ever been in one of my design meetings or econ meetings, there are a lot of questions that are thrown out there. And I do it to guide the discussion, but also to do more context setting for everybody around. So if everybody's not just going to the answer and thinking about, okay, what's the question that's getting me to the answer? We're all going to learn something in the process. And so that's a tactic I use. But in order for it to be successful, everybody has to be open, including myself, on the answers that are coming up. What's incredible is we have a deep bench of playmakers that come from across the industry. And there is always something to learn from someone. And while I 
I have a long history. I have my thoughts on how things should go, but I have to be open to learn from somebody else. With that said, there are some times where we have to take a step back and saying, okay, we're not seeing for the forest for the trees. Here's where we're going. Through questions and having everybody go through that process together, you get the learnings, you get the openness, and I think you arrive at better outcomes because the market is continuing to change. The players are continuing to evolve. The competition is evolving. And with everybody coming maybe with a slightly different perspective, I think it creates better decision-making. Talked about the the question methodology, the Socratic methodology before on this podcast as being a very powerful tool. It places the person that you're asking in control, right? Particularly if you're in a leadership role and makes them feel like they're driving the decision and you can then agree with them even if you were going to go with that decision beforehand. And you can really decide when you want to potentially use your leadership equity, as I call it, or not. And I think that's a really important aspect of being a leader, right? And yeah. the, the question method, I think, allows you just to build so much more equity because you can make it seem like you're going with their decision, even if, if you came in with what you wanted to do from day one, right? So it's a very effective tool. But you also, you can guide them, but you can learn something in that moment too. And that's what's really powerful when you, you know, when I look around the table and I see that people have had you know, a different experience than I have, but really a wonderful experience in different genres or the same genres at different companies. They've done different tests. So I think in taking that approach and listening carefully with an open mind, you can arrive at better outcomes, not just guide to where you want, where you think you should be headed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Right. You, I, I often found that when I was doing spec designs and we talked about this, I think in other podcasts as well, I don't know if it made it in the final cut, but if you went and you told the designer, this is what I want, then the designer was just basically putting colors onto your design. Right. And as a PM, you aren't necessarily very good at design. Whereas if you went with a question or you didn't do a wireframe, which I've talked about this before, I used to scribble ugly looking wireframes so that the design team would be like disgusted by it and be like, I'm fixing this. This is terrible. I'm scrapping it all. That's when I was excited because I knew that then they were going to own the design. I was going to own the the product, basically skeleton through the spec, and that was going to create the best product. And so I, I, I love that methodology where you're going in with the open mind, the questions and trying to get the best that they can into what you're trying to create. Yeah, I mean, I try to take it from a player experience standpoint too. So in most of the meetings, I try to focus or keep everybody oriented on the player experience as they as they problem solve, you know, their way through. And, you know, I really do believe I try and open my meetings up to a broader group a lot of times as well, because I think great ideas can come from anywhere. And so I'm trying to create a culture of design thinking and collaboration so that everybody is learning along the way. You know, if you're an engineer creating some super feature, I'd like you to know why we're doing what we're doing. And you've been part of Mm -hmm. that process all the way through. At some point, especially in making slot games, there's a chicken or the egg that happens where we start with a high-level design goal that we have and put the designer and the artist together. And one piece elevates the other. And when the product comes out, I like it to be, you know, you're not sure where it started because really the, the whole thing evolved together. 
Mm -hmm. People ask me what's, what's more important, the mechanics or the creative. And I feel like they both need one another. A classic example of our two styles. Katie said create around. I've said lipstick on a pig. So it's a good example (laughs) of how polished Katie is in her language. (laughs) I want to talk about something though. All decisions in a company are typically trade-offs. Like people will say to me, well, then you don't have the the real-time collaboration if you're remote. And I think to myself is, yes, I agree. There's a value in this. There's a value in all of us going to that or whatever it is, right? And I'm just giving the example of being in person, right? But for me and my company and the goals that I have, I've decided on trade-offs and I've said, well, yes, but it's better for the company that I'm trying to do to be remote because of X, Y, and Z. One of the things I think that you may be compromising is work-life balance a little bit or time management. You, you said at the end of the call last time, you start work at seven, you end work at whenever. What are some of the things you might improve on having this collaboration, but also still keeping a, the work-life balance? Work-life balance. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think how to answer this one. I mean, last <laughs> week, you did catch me a week out of a worldwide launch. I, I do think it ebbs and flows. There are times when you're just going, going, going. But like I said, I started off this podcast saying I took the last two Fridays off to go hiking and I feel like I'm, I'm mentally balanced and calm Katie. So, I mean, how, how do you want me to answer this in terms of in COVID mode or just generally speaking? Well, you can, you can <laughs> critique me. I've intentionally created a structure that has less collaboration. And one of the reasons I've done that is because collaboration takes time. And one of my core tenets of Liquid and Grit is that we compete on time. And I've intentionally created a structure where we do collaborate. I mean, it's not just me telling everyone to do and Katie Cuffle can attest to that, but I built it in a way that if I want to change directions, if you tell me something important right now that we should do tomorrow, we will be doing it tomorrow. The downside of that is there's a little less collaboration on some of these things. On your end, you're saying you do a lot of collaboration. The upside to that is buy-in, intrinsic motivation. But the trade-off is it takes more time. It takes time to get buy-in, to have a meeting, to make sure they're okay, to answer all their questions, to, to do all those things. And it's a compromise. It's a balance. And how do you decide whether or not one thing is, is more important than the other? I would... I'm going to answer this a couple different ways. One, in comparing ourselves to say liquid and grit, you need to think about the size and scale of our company. And and that's where collaboration, I think collaboration is really important for the type of products we're creating. However, you need to set it up in a way so that those conversations can be amplified throughout the organization. And so the way we're structured is we're set up with studio model. So that the My Vegas team is a studio and they're somewhat autonomous. Same with Pop, same with Konami, same with Bingo. They've got the freedom and flexibility to run fast, move, be agile, go. But then we've got this framework on top of it, which we call the council framework, which basically creates teams to knowledge share across those. And that's where maybe there's a little more effort in having that collaboration and communication, but the benefits of that are delivered you know, a hundredfold in each of the products because the products ultimately decide or the studios ultimately decide what they want to take on from that. But I guarantee you, if you were to go around each studio and ask them, you know, what they get out of it, collaboration, they 
they wouldn't trade for anything because we share successes, we share failures, and it saves time in the long run. Uh, we don't want everybody to have to make the same mistake themselves over and over again. Or, you know, when we hit on something, we want to accelerate uh, the way that's adopted across the board. But we never mandate, hey, you need to take this on. Each of the studios gets to do that on their own. And so I would say you're looking at me and my collaboration with the entire 400 playmaker team, which is very different than, you know, when we started and the collaboration was really the product people in a small group. And as you expand, we needed to find a way to do it elegantly to keep that same agileness of the team so that they can move on a dime. And that's, that's how we've set it up. Unstumpable. She's unstumpable. <laughs> I told you. We got off the last podcast and, and Katie Cuffle, my co-host, is giving me crap because I you know everything just sounded so positive, right? It sounded so too I good. Said, it this sounded one, too good. I'm gonna get her. I'm gonna get Katie. I'm gonna press her, you know, but she's unstoppable. Okay. It's just well, that I've lived it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Well, it resonates with me because people will question my stuff and even internally, we have this great guy on our team, Dan, who is super, super smart. He questions me on everything. I barely get any of my recommendations through to him. And he'll question me. He was questioning me in the hiring process. And I'm like, Dan, I, I've literally thought about this hundreds and hundreds of hours. And I appreciate that you're saying something. I don't say, don't say something. I'm just letting you know. It's all built for a reason. Like every single decision, there's a lot of thought behind it. So it sounds like very similarly, Play Studios was, was structured deliberately. You have to invest time in it. I mean, I've told you before, like I see my role as being an evangelist of new initiatives and a connector. I get the luxury of seeing everything that's happening across the studio. And I try to connect people to projects that are common projects across the studio. But you have to invest the time so that you've got voices throughout the company that can amplify your vision or you know your approach so that it can kind of feed off of itself. You need to create those opportunities to amplify what you're trying to achieve, but they understand the vision and why we're doing what we're doing and the things we've learned along the way. It's easier when it's, when it's a small group and you can all get in a room and everybody's on the same page. As you get bigger, mm -hmm. keeping everybody aligned is it takes work, even at our senior level. So I haven't I haven't talked to you about the way our team is organized, but we actually have our founding group. We work with coaches. We actually have this whole coaching framework to make sure that we're communicating and staying aligned on the business, on how we're communicating with one another, on where we're headed. And it's it's amazing. It's, it's like the coolest thing ever. And we've extended that coaching framework beyond the founder group to have a broader impact on the team. Alignment is critical. When you're aligned, Everything just works. You're crisp in decision-making. When we're aligned, the whole team, everybody's aligned. It makes everything work. I'm a big proponent of coaches. I, I was actually going to say that I have a, a psychiatrist who I consider a life coach that I meet weekly. And I also have a, a Navy SEAL who I meet with weekly as my like accountability coach, I call him. And I've actually also had the Navy SEAL now coaches two of the people on my team, and I offered it to a third, uh, sort of the leads. 
to develop their leadership. I think that one of the things I was frustrated by with working at other companies was there wasn't this personal development built in. It was just like we were mm. doing stuff all the time, just like work, 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 work. If that feature went out, whatever, doing the same thing and never stopping. And I've really learned through my work with both of these coaches that you really have to stop and examine yourself if you really want to change. It's very difficult to change. And if you don't have someone there with years of experience learning all this, it's hard to do. But if you can get it, it's unbelievably valuable. So it's awesome that you you guys also have a, a coaching system. It's an amazing framework. I don't think we've, we'd be able to move as quickly and make some of the tough decisions that we've made over the last few years and be as tightly aligned in where we're headed and how we want to do it without our coaches. And the way it's set up, we each have our own coach and we get together at least quarterly with our coaches all together. Now, our coaches talk to each of us and what we tell them is confidential and whatever, but then they're able to go back and talk amongst the coaches to better understand the whole picture. So I can't just give a one-sided, here's what it is, and have my coach just have my perspective. They come back and have everything. So when we get together quarterly, we're all together. And you can't get by when you're asked a question and you say, oh no, it that's we're fine on that. They'll be like, mm. There's more there. Keep going. And it's like honest. It keeps us aligned and it's magic. I mean, it is magic for our team, but it's really special. I mean, I think it's a really unique program, a unique structure. Love it. And that's what's so great about a coach because it's so obvious from the outside, right? It's like when you're talking to someone, they can just see reality that you can't see for whatever reason. Humans are just unfortunately wired <laughs> this way where you're like, oh, I'm, uh -huh. you know, I mean, like me, I'm like, oh, you know, my company is so great. You know, it's like my coach is <laughs> looking at me and be like, dude, you should have meetings with people or you should get, you know, it's like, it's obvious to someone else having somebody there to just be able to really, I think, show you what really going on reality. And also to spend that time to just stop and say, okay, this is, this happened. Let's sit down for an hour and let's examine this thing. And what's the core issue of it? Cause it's so often not the thing you're talking about. And that's what I've learned in life, my relationships, my business. When you work with a coach, you start peeling back the onion and you get to the core thing when it's just like, no, when you were a child, your mom clearly didn't show any empathy for you, Brett, uh, because she's telling you to literally hang up the phone and <laughs> show no emotions to this thing. And that is your problem. And you're like, oh, okay, that's right. Then you figure out, and my mom is the most wonderful woman in the world. And I love her so much. And she also listens to this podcast. So she does nothing wrong. So that's, that's just a <laughs> hypothetical understanding those core things, whether it be your childhood or whatever it is, I think really solves the problem. Not, oh, hey, next time you get on a call with somebody, make sure you, that you just stick to what you're going to say, right? Yeah, that, that doesn't solve the problem. One of the big areas of value with our coaches is it's really just helped in communication and making sure the easy conversations are had, the tough conversations are had, and that opening up the communication and making sure that it's all really tight and really clear is what helps bring the alignment. And then we take it beyond our team. So we even take it to playmakers. So we just got done two weeks ago, I think, with our mm. annual playmaker retreat, where we have each studio nominate 10 people from their studio to participate in a playmaker retreat led by the coaches. Leadership is not there. They're not invited. The feedback's anonymized when it gets back to us, but it's to take a pulse on 
how the company feels, what's happening, so that, you know, as we go into our next stages of whatever, whether it's annual planning or leadership summit, we have a voice of the playmakers and their perspective on what's happening. Sometimes you're blind to some of those things. We leverage the coaches in that way as well, just to make sure that we're looking at things from all angles. That's what coaches are, Mm -hmm. I think, really good at, uh, making sure conversations happen and making sure you're kind of openly looking at everything. Yeah. And you're not blind. You just have biases, humans, right? And you try to get away around these biases by having other people and coaches really help, I think, keep you honest. I think the other thing you touched on, which I really like, I think for people on your team, that's so great. (laughs) So I have the Navy SEAL work with my leads is because the person that they probably have the biggest issue with is me. And so (laughs) how am I going to be the one to say, let's do this thing and also their manager in a way that they're trying to do the best job that they can, right? So that's why I thought, well, this Navy SEAL is great. Let me have him work with them. Then they have the ability to talk to him about stuff that they couldn't say to me, right? Well, Brett Mm -hmm. is a little bit impulsive. Brett is a little bit, uh, doesn't get buy-in enough, or he's a little bit unemotional, right? And he can then work with them on it as opposed to them saying it to me directly, right? Like, hey, Brett, can you, that's an awkward Mm -hmm. conversation to have. And I think it's a great structure. I'm biased, obviously, yeah. but I, I think well, that's what you're kind of talking about a little bit too. Yeah, it was funny. I, we set up one of our leaders with the coach and they pick from a number of coaches and whatever. They were all set. And I got a call ahead of time. Hey, so what should I work on with my coach? And I oh. said, it's up to you. I mean, this really is for you to grow as a leader. And so I gave examples of, well, when I first started with my coach, this was one of the things I was dealing with. I think the person was a little bit shocked that you know bringing on a coach to help you get better at being a leader and it's really up to you to start with where you think you're challenged as a leader and uh-huh. i feel like the coaching framework is just something really special love it yeah, love it I'm a huge fan. And the other thing I'll add to it is it's not for everyone. There's someone on my team who you know, Corrine, who's amazing. She's the best. And I can't say enough amazing things about Corrine. I told her about the coach and she said, you know what, Brett, I don't need the coach. What I need is Wednesdays completely off from getting interrupted from anybody. Like basically (laughs) I get to work Wednesday without having to respond to anybody. And I was like, that's fine. That's great. Totally. You should take mm-hmm. that. She's like, that's the thing that's going to help me bring the health meter up a little bit, but bring down the, the stress meter or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, great. Let's do that. Whereas other two leads on my team, the coach is great for them. It's not for everyone, I don't think, but if, if you find the right person, man, it's, it's unbelievable. We've done a lot of really good reflecting, you Uh-oh. know, <laughs> on the past, on recent past. What are some of your thoughts about, it could be anything about like the industry, it could be about company management. What do you think is going to be happening in the next one year, two years, five years? Where do you think the puck is going? I'm going to keep this one play studios focused because as you know, we're on the precipice of an exciting new chapter Mm -hmm. for Play Studios. And so I would say I'm excited about the SPAC and going public. And I'm looking forward to it opening up new and exciting opportunities for development and in M&A and the unique opportunity we have to expand our Play Awards platform beyond the casino genre. Continue to be just so polished. (laughs) 
Just so polished. I mean, gosh, it's like, geez. That said, again, when I reflect back on the stuff you say, I don't disagree, right? I, I've also learned through psychiatry and everything. I'm 100% transparent and I can't not be. So everything that I think just comes out. I would call you out if I didn't think that was true. I mean, yeah. I do think that there's no doubt that the gaming industry is becoming more and more a part of our culture, more and more accepted, more and more just what we do. That's generations coming up, and it's just going to be so part of our 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 life and everything. And the the connection between real world and and virtual is just going to blur. Obviously, I mean, anybody who knows games knows that. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And thanks again to our special guest, Katie Bullish, for sharing her expertise and her stories with us. Hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you on the next one. Okay, so I have a hockey question for you. Did you have a coach, not your coach, but like a mental coach while playing hockey? You know, I did at some times, not as much as I probably would have liked. But I had several instances when I played for the national program, they would have, they had a mental coach that you could work with. Professional hockey was the best training for it, for mentally, for, for all of this. I mean, the intensity level of playing professional hockey is just, I mean, you, it sounds so awesome from the outside, but you got to understand that I had, I think, 15 roommates my first year of professional because every week almost it's somebody sitting down like hey my name's john or whatever hey how you doing where are you from oh, alaska two days later john's gone he got traded i got literally called in after a game at 10 o'clock at night and i we were i was first line center of the first place team calling the office and he just said i just traded you to the worst place team in <laughs> ohio you need to pack up your stuff go with one other guy in this on our team and drive 10 hours to ohio where you're going to play in the Dayton Bombers, which is the worst place team in our in our division, and they have a game on uh, Monday, so you got to play in that game. Now that means not only are you cut, but you're also moving Re relative to the working world. The point is, is that the uncertainty and stress level that went on in professional hockey was was massive. You basically had this revolving door of people coming in and out, and you could get traded anytime, you could get hurt anytime, you could get cut at any time, and that was uh, a really a mental, just super mental challenge. The answer is no, but the but it is with a caveat. Mm. Of, I really wish I did have that yeah. because it would have helped me a ton. And I did realize that mental was a huge part of it.